as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was so distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha. Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor. It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to hear your voice, and God, I pray that that would happen this morning. I pray that I would listen. I pray that we would all have tender hearts to receive your word this morning. And God, to see and to know that you love us, that you care for us, that you have lavished upon us grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. And let that overwhelm us and and swell within us a love for you and a love for those whom you love. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Well, I had a fantastic weekend. Went to Indianapolis with my family and uh, we celebrated Thanksgiving as many of you did, I'm sure. And we have a kind of tradition where we, we eat a lot of food, right? And, and then we eat a little bit more food, and then we wash it down with pie. And so we had a fantastic Thanksgiving, and we hope that you guys did as well. And so if you're a guest with us, you're, you're here for the weekend, you're still with family, we want to say welcome, and I'll introduce myself in case you don't know me. My name's Caleb Hutchcraft. I'm the youth pastor here at Community Christian Church, and I'm excited to be here, and I hope that you are as well. Well, what I want to talk about this morning, as Dusty already kind of previewed, and what we've been in for the last several weeks, is this idea of loving God, loving people, and living God's plan. It's the mission statement of our church. And so as a mission statement, it's, it's kind of our marching order, right? It's like why we exist. And I want to focus in on the idea of loving God, loving people. I want to be honest with you and unpack 
some of the tension I've had in my life as I've wrestled with and done very poorly at each of those. You see, I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in the life of many Christians. I've seen it in many churches, that we do a bad job at loving God and loving people. Because here's what we tend to do. We tend to overemphasize one more than the other. We tend to love God, but sometimes forget people. Or we tend to completely love people and forget God. And so we create these little microcosms of our own existence and our own version or brand of Christianity, emphasizing one and forgetting the other. And over here you have the idea of loving God. Because some people, out of a fear of overemphasizing a love for people and de-emphasizing God, spend all their time over here. And what this looks like is the negative caricature of Christianity. It's the version of Christianity that so many people in the world point the finger at and say, that's why I don't want to live there. That's why I don't believe that. Because over here you have a Christianity that is very rule-based, I've got to do all the right things. I've got to avoid all the wrong things because I need to please God. I need to love God. I need to love God through what I avoid, that I don't sin, that I do all these good things. And sometimes over here you have some very good people, very well-intended people. They're in church when the doors are open. They study their Bible. They raise their hands in worship. They do these things as often as they can. And their desire is to love God, but so often it stops there. And their love for God never extends into a love for people. Sometimes they're fearful of that because they realize people are messy. And sometimes that messiness looks like a lifestyle that's not loving God. And so they stay over here. My generation, I'm a millennial, if you would like to put a category on it. We've looked at that and we've said that's not the brand of Christianity we want. And so we've swung the pendulum all the way to the other side over here not all young people, but many. And they swing the pendulum over here and they say, we want to love people. We don't want the brand of Christianity that's all about sitting and studying and being there on Sunday. No, we want to actually have boots on the ground. We want to meet needs of hurting people, of starving people. And so we go to countries and third, third world countries and we build orphanages. We dig wells. We feed the hungry. We meet orphans who have no one to love them but so often it is completely devoid of any gospel message, of any eternal perspective. And both extremes are missing the point. And right here in the center, we find the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ That's not a little bit of loving God and not a little bit of loving people. It is actually the embodiment of both, fully and truly. Because the gospel, when it's the lens through which we see everything, becomes the motivation through which we do everything. And we can see it in these two passages. Luke chapter 10 John chapter 12. In Luke chapter 10, we've got Jesus coming into this town. And there's a woman named Martha. 
who invites him and his followers into her home. Now, culturally, this was a normal thing. Very hospitable people in Palestine. So if someone came into your town, you would host them. And you would feed them. You would give them somewhere to stay, somewhere to sleep. And so Jesus enters the home of Martha. And Jesus begins to do exactly what Jesus does. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. He begins teaching the people who are with him. Many probably came from the town because they've heard of this man, Jesus, and they wanted to hear him. So there's Jesus in the house of Martha teaching as Martha is being a good host and she's preparing food. Everything's going as planned except for one thing. Her sister, Mary, is sitting with all of the men. Culturally, that was taboo. That was a no-no. A woman does not sit down with men and learn from them. She does not sit at the feet of a rabbi. You don't do that. But that's what she chose. Martha, who's busy preparing all the food. Maybe you felt like this this weekend. You're getting everything ready for Thanksgiving. Then you notice there's certain people not helping you. And maybe you voiced your opinion. What are you doing? Turn the TV off. Hey, come over here. Come on. Baste the turkey for crying out loud. And she got so fed up with running herself ragged. And then I imagine her peering out of the kitchen. My sister's right there. Going back in. Oh, surely she'll come in. And then time passes and still her sister is still sitting there with all of the men. She is fed up at this point. She walks in. I think she interrupts Jesus as he's teaching. Excuse me, Jesus. Every head turns and looks at her. One of those moments we're probably like, um... <clears throat> I'm sorry, um, but could you tell my sister, could you tell Mary to come and help me? She's left me to do all the work. Jesus, come and tell her to do that, okay? Jesus says, Martha, Martha, what Mary has chosen is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I'm somewhat confused by this. Because if there's one thing I know about Christianity, it's that we're called to serve. We're called to be boots on the ground, work gloves on, serving the needy. And if you're not willing, there's something fundamentally wrong with your heart. If you're not willing to serve, so why is Jesus calling Mary away from service why is he almost reprimanding in a loving way, but still reprimanding Martha? All she's trying to do is prepare food for the people who she's hosted. You have to do that. So what is he saying here? Is he downplaying service? Is he saying the Christian is supposed to be over here just focusing on this idea of loving God, which is just studying scripture and not doing bad things and always praying and making sure you don't cuss and all these sort of things. That's just what the life of a Christian is. Just that. Is that what Jesus is saying here? I'm always confused by this text. But as I study it, I start to see that Jesus is doing something much, much deeper, much, much more important than what it seems on the surface. You see, Jesus knows something. Jesus knows something very, very important, something very, very fundamental, something central to a belief in Him. It's that the Gospel if it's the core of who we are, becomes the lens through which we see everything and the motivation for everything that we do. And he also knows 
that service for him and service for people can be done so adamantly that you actually forget about Jesus. Let me say that again. Service, Christian service, service towards people, loving people, can be done so vigorously that in our efforts we actually forget about Jesus and forget about why we are doing what we're doing. About a month ago, uh, Rachel, my wife, uh, decided to go to Kansas City to Hobby Lobby. She's a crafter, and she loves to go to Hobby Lobby, and I try my hardest to make sure I'm not with her when she goes. <laughs> uh, most of the time I regret that because she comes home with more than she should. But, um, so she tells me, I'm going to go to Kansas City, and I would, I would love it if you could stay home and, and watch Finn. We have a son. He's 20 months old. He was 18 months at the time. And I said, yeah, no problem. It was a Friday. I came home from work. I'm like, yeah, I'll spend a day with my boy. It'll be cool. It'll be just us dudes at home. We'll watch football. It'll be great. She's like, okay, I've got a few things I need you to take care of. I'm like, let me know. She goes, three things. I, I need you to put him to bed, okay? This is not like sleepover time where he's up till, you know, like till when I get back. Like, yeah, no problem. I'll put him to bed. Okay, second thing. Um, please don't destroy the house, okay? Um, keep things somewhat in order. I'm like, babe, babe, I got this. I'm super dad, all right? This will be good. She's like, and, and lastly, I want you to make sure you make him a dinner, okay? Don't give him a bowl of M&Ms. Don't give him some gummy bears, okay? Not like I've done that before. Um, and give him something that's nutritional. I said, okay, babe, I got this. You go do your crafty Hobby Lobby thing. We're going to stay here and have man night. So she leaves, and I walk back in the house, and I'm like, Finley, do you and Daddy? And he's like, yeah. And so we go into the living room, and we turn on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. He loves Mickey Mouse, and so it turns on. We sit on the living room floor, and we kind of dance as Mickey Mouse is singing and dancing. And then I turn to him, and I go, hey, buddy, you watch Mickey. Daddy's got to go start dinner. And so I walk into the kitchen, and I shut the baby gate behind us. We have a baby gate. Separates the kitchen from the rest of the house because Finn likes to come in the kitchen, open drawers, and pull knives out. So we bought a baby gate. So the baby gate is shut. And so I go in there and I start preparing dinner. It's only about 10 minutes before I hear a little rattle at the gate. And I turn around and I see my little son with a smirk on his face. He's got his hands wrapped around the rungs of this gate. And he's looking at me. I just go, hey, buddy. He goes, dada? Play? And I walk over to him, I get down to his level, and I say, Finley, Daddy's doing dinner. Mommy wants me to cook dinner for you, so that's what I'm doing, okay? It's for you, buddy. Go watch Mickey Mouse. And he turns around, and he runs back to the living room, starts watching Mickey Mouse. So I'm making chicken tacos, okay? And so I'm getting the chicken out, I'm starting to sear it, and I'm getting the tortillas warmed up, everything's starting to come together. And about 10 minutes later, I hear another little rattle at the gate. I turn around, and I take one step towards him, I kind of get down, and, what's up, buddy? He goes, Daddy, play. And I go, I, I told you, I'm, I'm cooking dinner for you, okay? Daddy's busy right now. Please, please go play, okay? And he goes, huh. Dinner's about ready at this point. I've got the chicken out. I'm cutting it up. I'm assembling the tacos. I'm in the final stage of taco assembly, okay? I'm about to say, Finley, dinner's ready. And then I hear a much louder, much more aggravated, <laughs> at the gate. And I just look over my shoulder. I don't even walk over to him. I go, hey, buddy. He goes, daddy! Play! I go, Finley, I can't. I'm getting dinner ready, okay? Can you leave daddy alone? And he just 
falls down and starts crying. And I didn't think much of it. I really didn't. But weeks later, as I prepared this sermon, I've preached this sermon before, I started to think about that interaction with my son, and what I realized was this, that in my attempts to love and serve my son, I forgot about my son. In my attempt to love and serve my son, I forgot about my son. Dads, isn't that very possible for us to do? Come home busy from work. We have jobs so we can provide for our family, provide for our children, as we should. But there are days where we come home, my son, I know he meets me in the kitchen as soon as I walk through, Daddy, 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 and there are days I don't even see him because I'm so distracted by things that I just came from. It's very easy for us to, in the busyness of striving to love and serve our children, in the busyness of trying to love and serve our wives, in the busyness of trying to love and serve God, in the busyness of trying to love and serve people, we can forget about the very people whom we are trying to love and serve. And Jesus knows that this is true of him as well. And he knows the dangers of taking a service for him, devoid of a love for him, too far. In Revelation chapter 2. See, the book of Revelation is a lot of letters that came together. Because Jesus appeared to this man named John. He was one of Jesus' disciples. And he said, John, I want you to write down everything that I reveal to you and everything that I say to you. I want you to write these things down. And so he showed John these visions and he spoke directly to John. And much of the beginning of Revelation are seven letters to seven churches. And Jesus, in many ways, is calling them back to something. He's reminding them of why they even chose him in the first place. He's reminding them of who he is in relation to them. He is in many ways reprimanding them because they have gone too far in many ways. And he says this in chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's simply him saying, Hey, I am Jesus. Hey, you are the church. I hold you. Okay? Just make sure we've got this relationship right. I'm Jesus. You're the bride. I know your deeds, he says, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. You have found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardship for my name. You have not grown weary. He says, Christian, you were doing so many things right. You were full of perseverance. You were full of endurance. You were full of orthodoxy. Proper doctrine. You are doing so many things right. I congratulate you for that. I confirm you for that. But, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. What does that mean? He's echoing back to something. Jesus himself, the voice of Christ, is echoing back. You have forgotten your first love. 
Christian, you are doing many of the things a Christian is supposed to do. You're loving God in all of these ways over here, right? But you've forgotten why. You have forgotten your proper motivation. You're trying to climb a ladder. You're trying to be good enough. You're trying to earn. Over here, you're serving. You're doing all of these good things, but you've forgotten about me. You've forgotten why you're supposed to love people. You've forgotten why you're supposed to serve. And in all of the goodness that you have in your life, all of the apparent fruit, it is not rooted in Jesus Christ. It is not rooted in the gospel. And you are in danger, Christian, he says. What Jesus is doing is he is aligning us with him. He is aligning us with the truth of the gospel. So that the gospel can be the lens through which we see everything and the motivation for all that we do. And it's why he confirms Mary. And it's why he lovingly reprimands Martha. And he says, what Mary has chosen is best because Mary was sitting in the presence of Jesus. The word disciple literally translates to sit at the feet of. She was being discipled by. She was becoming a disciple of Jesus. You see, in John chapter 12, and this is something that for years and years, my study of Scripture, I missed. But there are many New Testament scholars who have written about this. And it's up for debate. There are people who disagree with it. So I'd encourage you, do your own study if you want to get into this. But I tend to align myself with several scholars who believe that John chapter 12 and Luke chapter 10 are one and the same story. Though they're telling things from a slightly different vantage point, Though they're highlighting slightly different circumstances that happened within an event, I believe it to be the same event. That you have Jesus coming into this town called Bethany and going into a home. And it says that Martha served. Lazarus was there. In fact, many people were there. And Jesus was teaching And if you look at a third parallel passage in Mark chapter 14, we see that Jesus was teaching something specific. And we can see it in his response to Mary after she did what she does. Jesus is beginning to talk about his impending death. As Mary sits with this group of men and Martha is serving, Jesus is teaching his disciples. Jesus is discipling his disciples. As they sit at his feet, they're listening to him talk about, I am. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to suffer. My life will be forfeit for you. And as they hear this, because they come from a religious context of Judaism, and Judaism at that time was about climbing a ladder to God, being good enough, keeping a list of rules, which they realized was impossible. They weren't as good as the Pharisees. They weren't as good as the Sadducees. They weren't as good as the rabbi. They were constantly failing. They were constantly miserable. They were constantly not good enough. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to die for you so you don't have to be good enough. Because I'm good enough. And in my death, I will cover your sin. I will be righteousness for you. And as Mary hears this, and what is so incredible is that this room filled with men, they miss it. But this woman, Mary, gets it. 
She gets what Jesus is talking about. She gets and she sees his love for her, the gospel. That it's not her being good, it's his goodness covering her. And then she realizes the extent of his love. And then the gospel starts to plant itself in her heart. And what does she do? She runs and she gets the most expensive possession she has, a bottle of pure nard worth a year's wages. The, the equivalent of the average income, thirty-five dollars to $38,000 today. She takes it, she breaks it open in the midst of this room, in front of all of these men who were already judging her for being there and sitting in Jesus' presence. Her sister, who has already called her out in front of everybody. She doesn't care. She's overcome with the love of Christ. She falls at his feet, breaks open this jar, begins to pour it on his feet, and wipes his feet with her own hair. Not caring anything about her reputation or how she would look or if people would judge her or whether or not this was right she was overcome by Christ's love for her and as the gospel began to plant itself in her heart she developed a love for him which led her to action to do something and Jesus said do not judge her what she has done is beautiful She's done this to prepare me for my burial. You see, Jesus also said, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. You see, we don't have Jesus with us in bodily form today. We cannot prepare meals for him. We cannot break open a perfume jar and pour it on his feet. But Jesus said, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. You give a cup of water to a little child, you have done so for me. When you go and visit those who are in prison, you have done so for me. When you have fed the hungry, you have done so for me. And it comes from a motivation centered, rooted in the gospel. That we are loved by Christ. That he lavishes grace over us again and again and again. And that should grow within us a deep love for Jesus and a deep love for the people whom he loves. And it should lead us to action. Tangible, need-meeting, heart-mending, tear-wiping, belly-feeding action. In the mid-1800s, there's a man named Joseph Damien who was born in Belgium. And by his teenage years, he realized he wanted to be a pastor. He wanted to go into ministry. So he trained for ministry, and then at the age of 18, he was commissioned and sent to a Hawaiian island of Malakai. And while on the island of Malakai, his assignment was to spread the gospel, to preach and teach about Jesus from the scriptures, and, and that's exactly what he did. But what he did in his own time was that he would study the scriptures fervently, looking at the person of Jesus, looking at who Jesus was, looking at who Jesus loved. And as he studied the Gospels and he looked at the life of Jesus, something stood out to him. He realized how sinful he was. He realized how selfish he was. He realized how broken he was. And then he realized 
that God demands perfection. That God demands that we be sinless and that it's impossible for us to be sinless. And he had a moment of desperation, which, what, what then do I do? And then as he poured into the gospel, he realized that a sacrifice was sent in Christ to pay the price for us, to make us sinless through Christ, to have his righteousness given to us. And he was overcome with joy and love for Jesus, which then made him ask the question, how can I be Jesus here? How can I be Jesus to the people of the Molokai Island? How can I love the people Jesus loved? If Jesus was here on this island, who would he go to? What would he do? Then he started to take notice of this small group of people who were living on this other island, such a small island, many locals simply called it just a rock. It was several hundred yards off of the shore, out separated and surrounded by water. They'd been kicked out of their homes. They'd been kicked out of their communities. It was older men and women. It was middle-aged men and women. It was young boys and girls. They were kicked out of their communities and their families and their homes because they had gotten leprosy. Many of you probably know what leprosy is. It's something that's, in most places in the world, been eradicated. But at this particular place, over a hundred Years ago, it had not been. And so this small group of people who had contracted this disease, leprosy, that begins to break down your body at a molecular level from the inside out until you no longer have feeling left in your body, and then your skin begins to rot and fall away. And so many of the characteristics of leprosy are people missing parts of their body, fingers, toes, eventually arms, portions of their face, until they die. It's extremely contagious, It's spread through contact. So whenever someone would get this, they had to be removed. They had to be removed from their home. They had to be removed from their village. And they had to go to this small island, this rock that was surrounded by water. And they had to live their life there until they died. And he said, these are people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Who would Jesus go to? They would go to the lepers of Malachi. So he started taking a small boat with food and provision and he would go over to this island. And at first they, no, no, you cannot come here, they would say. And they realized he, he came of his own free will. He came of his own choice. And he would bring them food. He would care for them. And he eventually earned the name the leper priest. And for 12 years, Joseph Damien would go to this small island and bring provisions to this leper colony. But most of all, this is what he would do. He was known for placing his hands on dying lepers and praying for them. Lepers, a disease that is spread through human contact. He would place his hands on these people as they were dying and he would pray for them. He was known for this, and this breaks my heart. Children who got leprosy young children, young little boys, young little girls, potentially the age of my son, who had to be taken from their families. And they could not understand why. And they were placed on this small island where no one talked to them, no one touched them. And they had to be asking, why? Where are mommy and daddy? Where are they? What is this? He would go to these children and he would pick them up. And he would hold them. And from his own hand, he would feed them so that they would have some semblance of human love and affection and touch. 
One day, Joseph Damien went home, and he was boiling a pot of tea. He accidentally knocked it over, and the boiling pot of tea ran down his leg, and the first thing he noticed was that he did not feel the boiling water. And he immediately knew he had contracted leprosy. But he continued to go, and continued to go to this island until he had to be bed fast, he had to be fed by spoon, and he eventually died. His family came from Belgium to pick up his body, and when they, when they came and they were taking his body away, there were people, messengers, who had been sent by the lepers who, who said that the leper colony wants his body to stay here. They, they want the body to be to be buried here, and the family said, no, we need to take his body back to Belgium. We need it to be here. It's his homeland. He was born in Belgium. We're taking the body back. And so they requested, a somewhat odd request, can, can we have his right hand? Can we keep Joseph Damien's right hand here and bury it on this island? And they said, why? They said, before him, we didn't know what the hand of Jesus was like. But his hand was the only hand that would touch us. His hand was the only hand that would love us. And we saw Jesus in him. And if you go to the Malakala Islands today, there's a monument there to Joseph Damien. And if you look at his life, you see that the motivation there was not simply, I guess I need to serve. Because who does that? Who gives their own life for others? A person who is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ that I am far more sinful than I ever knew. Far more sinful. But I am still loved by a God who gave everything for me. Man, I want to love that God. I want to serve that God. And I want to love the people that He loved. And so He calls us to sit and be reminded like Mary sat. To be reminded of who Christ is. He calls us to sit and be reminded of the gospel of how he loves us, how he has cared for us. And then as that truly forms within us a great love and desire for him, it motivates us and leads us into a great love and desire to serve the people whom he also loved. As the band comes forward and closes us out, I want you to think about this. I want you to think, are you, are you a person that somehow struggles to love other people? Are you a person that somehow struggles to um, have empathy for others? You see, I, in my own life, I have sometimes simply justified other people's predicaments that they find themselves in. That they are to blame for this or, or for that. And that I often don't have grace for them. Or maybe you find yourself over here that, that you're, you're judging and, and casting glances at that crowd of people. That you're judgmental and unloving towards the people who are judgmental and unloving. We all have a tendency to be full of hypocrisy. We all have the potential to be so full of ourselves and our own selfishness. And so once again, as the band is coming forward, I want you guys to be assessing and thinking through where you find yourself now when it comes to the idea of loving God. Do you love God just in these ways to keep yourself safe, to feel as though if you love Him enough 
and if you do all the right things, that then He is loving you in return? Or maybe you do have this love for people. You do serve people in, in many ways, and, and you meet needs, but it's not coming from a motivation of a love for God. Maybe it's coming from a motivation that's, I, I want these people to like me, and I'll do anything, and I'll do everything that I can. Because you see, Christ is calling us to be centered on the gospel. And it will change how we see everything, and it will change how we are motivated towards everything. And so I hope that you can think about that. And I hope as he calls us to a life which is dependence upon him, that we can be centered right there on Christ and what he has done for us and what he will do through us. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for what you have done on that cross, for what you have done for us. God, let us see the severity of our sin, the depravity of our hearts and our minds, because only then do we realize how glorious it is, how grace-filled and loving it is that you paid the price for us when we were guilty and you were innocent. And let us be overcome with a love and an affection for you and let that carry itself into a love and an affection for the people that you love God, so that we are motivated by you, motivated by the gospel, motivated by love. God, to love you and to love people because that is your plan. In Christ's name, amen.